right. If you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Genesis. If you don't know where Genesis is, just start at the beginning and I think you'll get close. Uh, so Genesis chapter 25 is where we're going to be. And we're in the middle of a series that we started last week on uh, that we're calling the God of Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, thinking about these characters from the book of Genesis and um, how they teach us and reveal our own weaknesses, but also reveal the God that is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. Um, sometimes my son wants to play superheroes, and when we play superheroes, it's decided beforehand who is going to win. So it will go something like this. His favorite superhero right now is one that I think he's made up called Superdog. And he says, I'm Superdog, and you're the bad guy, but you can't hurt me, and I win. And so I'll fight back for a little bit, but eventually I'm on the ground, and he lets out some sort of a victory yell or a victory bark, I guess it would be, um, and I am defeated. But ultimately, I never really had a chance, right? Uh, the outcome was decided before the battle even even started. And we're going to jump back into uh, Genesis 25 and the story of the birth of Jacob and Esau, and we're going to find something that is, to be totally honest, very difficult for us to grasp. And it's the fact that God sovereignly chooses to bless Jacob and not Esau. That Jacob is going to be the seed of blessing and not Esau. That the outcome of their lives, as it were, is decided even before they are born. It's a doctrine that we often call the doctrine of election. And it may send chills up your spine even just for me to say that. But I want us to think about what God's word says about this. Before we jump into that, though, I want let's let's kind of come up to speed um, with with where we're at um, in, in, in the story. So we need to revisit where we were last week. Um, in the book of Genesis, and we, we shifted from the story of Abraham, which spans from chapter 12 all the way to, um, to chapter 25, and, and now we're into the account of his son, Isaac, and Isaac's descendants. And the characters have changed, but the storyline is still the same, as you remember, and it's occupied with God's great promise, this promise to bring blessing to and through Abraham and his descendants to this great promise of a rescuer who is going to bring redemption and restoration to the chaos that sin has brought into the world. And we saw that there was a threat to that promise last week. And the threat was that Isaac and Rebekah, this couple who is supposed to be the next in line to receive the blessing of God, they had, there's a problem and they are unable to have children. Rebekah is barren. And we sat with them for 20 years. It was more like 20 minutes for us. But we thought through what was it like for 20 years for Isaac to pray for his wife. 20 years of asking God to fulfill his promise of a seed. And we saw how God taught them this discipline of persistent prayer. And how God was building faith in them, even in the midst of a difficult situation. And how he was glorifying himself. And through all of this, how God was making it clear that, that this is his promise. And he is going to do it. And he's going to do it in his own timing. And he's going to do it through his power. That's what he's showing them. It's, it's covered in one verse because the real threat that is posed here in this passage about the, to the seed is, is not necessarily Rebecca's barrenness, but rather, um, it's the violence that's in her womb after she becomes pregnant. So in verse 22, it's so bad that she says there in, in chapter 25, verse 22, they're struggling and she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? 
She's she's so burdened and so in so much pain and anguish that she she says, why did I even pray for that, for God to give me a child if it was going to be like this? And I don't think it's just the physical pain and maybe the fear of what's going to happen to her kids, but it's also, is this some sort of sign about what is going on? What will this birth of these children mean for me? So she inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers her. And we're going to pick it up here in verse 23 of chapter 25 in the book of Genesis and see what God says. She inquires of the Lord in verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. That'll be enough for this morning, I think. I had wanted to get to the end of the chapter, but we'll have enough to, to process this morning. Verse 23 is a divine ultrasound. You can think about this because they had no idea what was going on in her stomach, but God knows what's going on. And, the, and Rebecca finds out through this prophecy that she is going to have twins. That the pain that she's feeling in her womb is in fact a wrestling match between her two sons. That, that what's going on is is Esau is body slamming Jacob, or maybe Jacob is putting Esau into some sort of sleeper hold. You know, it's like Royal Rumble in her womb. This is some, that's what the pain is. And, and even when it came time for them to enter into the world, Jacob refuses to give up and to lose in this wrestling match. And he, he, when Esau comes out, so does Jacob's hand holding on to Esau's heel as if to say, I'm not going to give up. I won't let you beat me. That's how these guys are born. The words of the prophecy in, in, in verse 23 say that this fight is going to continue on. and actually has multiple expressions. The first and the most obvious place that this struggle is happening is in this relationship between these two brothers. And, and the strife that starts in the womb is going to continue throughout this story. And we'll see it throughout the book of, of Genesis, this fight between Jacob and Esau. It gets so ugly that Esau says, I'm going to kill Jacob when my father dies. Um, and Jacob is forced to run away to another country for 20 years. And then when he comes back, there's this tension-filled thing in chapters 32 and 33 where they're going to come back together and who knows what's going to happen. But notice also the prophecy talks about nations, doesn't it? Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. It's not just these brothers, but the, the, um, the feud between them grows into a feud between the nations that come from them. Um, and so we, we see that throughout history that there's a, a, a battle, as it were, a feud, strife, struggling between the people that come from Jacob, the people of Israel, and the people that come from Esau, the people of Edom. And there is battle throughout the history of the Bible between these two nations. And even beyond that, these brothers represent something. They represent the, the people of God, and they represent those who would reject God. There's conflict here. And there's conflict in this world between the people that are of God's promise and the people who reject God. And so these brothers remind us that that exists in our world. But we've kind of 
said fighting amongst brothers is is sort of to be expected. You know, that's what siblings do. If you have brothers or sisters, you know that uh, that's what siblings do. My children fight. They learn early on how to fight. I don't know that they would fight in the womb. Um, I mean, this starts pretty quick, doesn't it? They're, they're fighting right from the get-go. But we know that that's sort of what happens. Um, people fight. The brothers, siblings argue. Nations fight. Uh, maybe not this extreme, but it shouldn't be terribly surprising. What's surprising in the prophecy is that there's a prediction about who will come out on top in all of these conflicts. Who will be victorious? It's the last two lines. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So who wins? The younger, namely Jacob, wins. Now, Jacob is here identified through this as the seed of the promise. He's the one that God is going to to bless. God's blessing that started with Abraham and went to Isaac is now going to be passed not to Esau, but to Jacob. He will be the child of promise. That might not seem a big deal, like a big deal to us, but it would have been a big deal of the culture at the time because who's supposed to receive the blessing? The older one. Even if it's only by a few minutes, the older one gets the blessing. And so it makes sense, humanly speaking, for the older of these two twins to have mastery over the younger brother. Even more, it, we find here it says what? That one shall be stronger than the other. Now that's talking about physical strength. As we read the story, we know who that is. That's Esau. Esau is stronger. And so certainly um, it would make sense that the older and stronger of the two brothers is the one that gets the blessing, right? He's going to rule over his, his younger brother. Esau, therefore, is the perfect candidate for the guy who's going to carry on the promise. He's the one that would make sense. He's older. He's stronger. He comes out of the womb. It says he's covered in hair. He's like a baby born with a full beard, you know, if you can imagine that. And they, he comes out. What do they call him? They call him Red. That's his name. I mean, it just sounds cool. Who doesn't want to be friends with a guy named Red, you know? And he grows up, and he's, he's a man's man. He's a, he's a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. If you can think about what hunting would have been like in those days, I mean, he's got to be a pretty tough guy. So Esau's the obvious choice to carry on this line of, be- of blessing. He's the firstborn. He benches 300. He changes his own oil. He's an outdoorsman. I mean, he's just he's the obvious choice. Let's Let's pick Esau. But God's ways are not our ways, are they? The miraculous conception of these children last week sort of emphasizes God's provision of this promised seed. He says, I will bring this about. And the struggle between these brothers and then the choosing of the younger older the, over the older emphasizes God's sovereign election, God's choice. This is our big idea, and this is why I think it's enough for us to think about this morning. It's this. God sovereignly chooses who he will bless. God sovereignly chooses who he will bless. Now, just those words, God chooses, may make you squirm in your seat a little bit, or at least in your brain. Um, And the doctrine of God's election, his purposeful choosing of some to bless and others not to bless, is not easy. But if we're honest with Scripture, then we it's something that we can't really deny. This is one of the great things, the blessing and the curse of going through a book of the Bible. I can't avoid it. Uh, this is what the next verses are, and so I've got to figure out, why did God choose Jacob? And we need to wrestle with this. Um, election is a, is a deep doctrine, and it's one that we're not going to fully grasp this morning, let alone maybe in this whole life. Um, but we're going to do our best to, to dive deep. 
Because I want us to think not just about God's choosing of Jacob, but also how God works within salvation. And how he chooses those who will be saved, who he will bless with the gift of, of salvation. And so hang with me for a little bit. Let's, let's try to dive into these waters, because I think if we go down deep enough that there's treasures down sort of in these depths that you can't figure out if we just sort of stay at the surface and say, I don't agree with that. Or say, I do agree with it, but don't think about it. So let's, let's figure it out. So again, the prophecy is that Jacob is the one who is going to be blessed. He will receive the blessing of his father. He will carry on the promise that, that has begun with Abraham. And we'll watch this. This is what happens. It unfolds throughout the story. Jacob is the one who is blessed. We saw that prophecy regarding nations, and that comes true as well. Israel does dominate over Edom, this other nation. So what is predicted actually does happen. But here's the question. Why Jacob? Why God? Why did, why did God choose to bless Jacob? Because on the surface, Jacob certainly isn't the first guy that you would pick for your team, especially if he's standing next to Esau. I don't know that you'd pick either of them. Uh, the more you look at the story, I don't know that you'd pick either Jacob or Esau. But, but how does Jacob begin his life? He begins it by grabbing at his, at his brother's heel which is the source of his name. At the beginning, that probably meant that, he, that Jacob was sort of a, a protector. That was sort of what they thought that symbolized. But they came to realize that's not what that meant at all. And, and this idea of grabbing at someone's heel became synonymous with, with being uh, deceptive or conniving, because that's what Jacob was like. He's further described in verse 27 as a, ma- as a, a quiet man dwelling in tents. A commentator, Alan Ross, calls him a reflective nomad. His brother is a rough hunter. He's a bit impulsive, we'll see later. But Jacob is sort of even-tempered. He's, he's self-controlled. He's cool. But he's also pretty calculating. You know, he's figuring out what's going on all the time. But these brothers, we can they're part of the human race. So like all of us, there's things that are attractive about them. And at the same time, they're both deeply flawed. So Isaac and Rebecca know this, but at the same time, they choose favorites. And they choose favorites based on their own desires. So Isaac loves Esau. Why? Verse 28, because he ate of his game. Uh, Isaac liked good food. And Esau was a hunter. And so he'd go out and kill this food and bring it home. And this father and son shared a a deep love for food. Uh, and actually what we'll see later on is their love for food causes a lot of issues in their lives, in both of their lives. So uh, Isaac loves Esau. Rebecca favors Jacob. It doesn't say why there. We know why Esau or why Isaac favored Esau, but Rebecca just says love Jacob. It could be because um, of the prophecy that she had heard. Maybe she was holding on to that. Jacob will be the one that is blessed. Um, but there could be other reasons. Maybe he, you know, he was always in the tent. Jacob was just always there, and so he hung out with his mom more often, and so their bond sort of increased. Whatever their reasoning, though, this divided loyalty between the two sons causes issues, right? If you know the story at all, later on this is going to be a problem. Parents playing favorites with their children never ends well. I know because I was the favorite. My sisters always called me the chosen one. I think because I was the only boy. And it was always fun. We, we had fun with it. I don't think I'm the favorite. My younger sister, she's the favorite. Um, but it never works out well. If that's the case, though, why is God playing favorites? Doesn't that seem what he's doing? Is God playing favorites here? Why does God choose one over the other? 
if it's wrong for Isaac and Rebecca, then why is it not wrong for God to do that? We're going to try to answer some of these questions by jumping out of Genesis 25 and going to Romans 9. So I encourage you to turn your Bible to Romans 9. This is in the New Testament. You get through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you see the big book of Acts, it's right after Acts. Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, Paul is dealing with the Jewish people and their place in God's plan of redemption. They are his chosen people, but yet God has sent Jesus, who has come to be the Savior of the world, and Gentiles are coming in as well as Jewish people, and he's trying to figure out where do the Jewish people fit into God's plan. And in chapter 9, he draws on the stories of, of Ishmael and Isaac, and then on Jacob and Esau to sort of explain his point. So look at Romans chapter 9, and look at verse 6. He says, it is, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, that his word has failed to the Jewish people. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it was not the children of the flesh who were the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time Next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Just stop there for a minute. So Paul's talking, and he's saying that not everyone who comes from Abraham, they are not all children of the promise. And he brings up the example of Ishmael and Isaac. So Ishmael and Isaac both descended from Abraham, but the promise goes to who? It goes to Isaac. And so not all who come from Abraham receive the promised blessing. And part of what he's saying is that the, those who are true children of Abraham are children of faith. But he, he draws this, this picture. Of course, the problem with this is we could say, well, Ishmael wasn't picked because he was born through Hagar. And God had said the promise would go through Sarah. So that's why Isaac was picked. So Paul's going to give a better example. Let me give you an example of two brothers with the same mother, with the same birthday. <laughs> Pick it back up, Romans 9, verse 10. And not only so, but also, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Notice a few things here. Jacob and Esau, unlike Ishmael and Isaac, had the same mother. So they're equal in that sense. Uh, the choice of who would be blessed occurs when? It occurs before they are born. The choice of who would be blessed occurs before they have done anything good or bad. Both of those statements in verse 11. And, so, and, and finally, the natural choice is that, that Esau would be picked because he's the older. But she is told in verse 12, the older will serve the younger. So, thinking about Genesis 25 and thinking now about what Paul's saying in Romans 9, let me just say two big ideas about God's purpose of choosing those who he will bless. So we said God chooses, sovereignly chooses those he will bless. I want to say two things that will help us hopefully get into the mind of God about what this means. 
The first is this. God's choice to bless is always undeserved and unconditional. God's choice to bless is always undeserved and unconditional. What we're wrestling with in our minds is this idea of fairness. Okay, Is God just? Is he doing what's right? So let me ask you some questions. Did Jacob deserve? Did, did he earn? Did he merit this blessing? Well, when did God choose him? Before he was born. Before he had done anything right or wrong. So no, he wasn't chosen by God based on, on anything that he had done. Does Jacob deserve the blessing of God? No. What does Jacob deserve? Nothing. What does God owe Jacob? Nothing. What does God owe Esau? Nothing. What does God owe us? Absolutely nothing. The fact that in our lungs we have oxygen and we are breathing right now is a gift of God's grace that we do not deserve. Everything that we have is a gift. I was reading 1 Corinthians this week and I was struck by this simple question Paul asks. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? Nothing. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything is undeserved from the greatest blessing in our lives to the smallest gift. So we can answer this question, why Jacob? By saying, because God is full of grace and mercy. The only reason that Jacob receives any kind of blessing is because of the mercy of God. His choice to bless anyone is always undeserved. Jacob didn't earn it. And it's also unconditional, meaning that there's, there's no criteria. There's, there's, there's no hoops that Jacob has to jump through in order to be chosen as the one that God will bless. Well, he can't because he's not even born yet. Maybe you have memories of being on the playground and when teams are picked, you know, and you pick the two captains and you're one of the captains and you're going to pick your team up. You got reasons for why you're picking everyone. So I'm going to pick, you know, based on what game we're playing, I'm going to pick them based on their athletic skill. So for playing football, I want a tall, fast guy to be a wide receiver. I need someone big to block. So I'm going to pick based on that. Maybe you don't pick on their athletic ability, but you pick because, you know, this guy's your best friend. I want Mike on my team because he's my best friend. And so he's coming to my team. And maybe, you know, there's times where you say, I feel bad for this guy. I don't want him to be the last one picked, so I'm going to pick him first. And I'm going to bring him on my team. But no matter what, there's, there's reasons. You, you kind of have a, a way that you're processing through that. Now, I'm not saying that God's choice and election is without reason. But what I'm saying is that God's election of his people is not rooted in anything that we do. But it's rooted in his good pleasure for his glory. Why does he choose Jacob? I have no idea. Why does he not choose Esau? Why would we even ask that question? I have no idea. God's choice, though, is not conditioned on who we are or what we do, but it's conditioned on him and on his glory and his mercy. God's choice, in fact, is not at all like Rebecca and Isaac's favoritism. It's the opposite. He doesn't choose based on who he likes best. They choose based on what they like, but that's not how God chooses. God's choice is undeserved and it's unconditional. So a better question than why Jacob and not Esau is, why either of them? Why would God choose any of us? Why would God bless any of us? Because it's always undeserved and it's always 
unconditional. Why does God show any common grace to any of us? Why does he show the grace of salvation to any of us? Again, the reason that we struggle with this doctrine of election is because of this concept of fairness, that it's unfair for God to favor Jacob over Esau. That's not fair. But if you really want to talk about fairness and justice, we should say it's not fair for God to choose either of them. Is God unfair? Yes. Fairness would mean death and punishment for everyone. That's what fairness is. Romans goes on. So if you're still open to Romans 9, just hear what Paul says here. I invite you to read more in Romans 9. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Do you see how unconditional it is? Why does God have mercy? Because I'm going to have mercy. I'll have mercy on who I have mercy. And I will, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is not unfair or unjust. In some sense he is, I guess. But he is unbelievably merciful. His choice is to bless. His choice to bless is always undeserved and unconditional. That's the first thing. The second thing, God's choice to bless is always for his glory. God's choice to bless is always for his glory. If Jacob is chosen because of who he is or what he has done, then Jacob gets the glory. But God chooses Jacob before he is born or before he does anything to show the greatness of his mercy and to show the wonder of his grace. Salvation from beginning to end is God's work. Therefore, it glorifies God alone. So Ephesians 1 talks about our salvation and it blesses God as the one who has chosen us in Christ when? Before the foundations of the world. Not even just before you were born, but before the foundations of the world were even set, we were chosen in him. If we are his children, Romans one through three reveals how sinful we really are. And it brings us low and shows us that apart from God, we have no salvation. We are dead in our sins and we will die for all eternity if God doesn't step in. But, but God has sent Christ as our substitute. And here's what Jesus does. He lives a sinless life. He's the only human being that could ever stand before God based on his own merit. He's the only person that say that could say, God, you should choose me because he was perfect and he had never sinned. He alone deserves salvation. But what does he do? He dies to pay for our sins. He doesn't call us to be good. He doesn't say you've got to earn God's love. You've got to show that you're worthy of his choice. No, no. Christianity is about seeing how sinful we are but seeing how great our Savior is. So in Romans 3.27, it says that boasting is excluded. There's no room for boasting at all, anywhere in salvation. And God's grace stands forth. God alone is glorified when salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He receives all the glory. In fact, 1 Corinthians would seem to say that if we're chosen by God, it's actually because we're weak and helpless. <laughs> God says, I chose you, Israel, because you're the smallest of the nations, so that I would look great. And in 1 Corinthians 1.27, it says this, But God chose what is foolish. Now, know this. If you're a Christian, that's you. 
<laughs> God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak, us again, in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are ours, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God doesn't pick like we do on the playground. God doesn't pick like we would in Genesis 25. He doesn't pick the, the hulking, hairy hunter who's born first, right? That's not who he goes with. Who's he go with? He goes with the heel-grabbing, conniving, deceptive mama's boy who likes to hang out in the tent all day. That's who he picks. And that's us. And he picks a guy who is not really going to follow him as we walk with this journey. He's not going to follow God. He's not going to bow the knee to God until God wrestles him, literally, and leaves him with a limp for the rest of his life. God chooses people like you and like me, and we always have to remember that choice is undeserved. It's And it's unconditional, and it's always for his own glory. Now step back for a minute. This doctrine can be very scary for some people. It can be very unsettling. It can make you angry. And I just want to recognize that's okay. Let's talk about it. Okay. Um, for those that may be unsettled, the question can come, what if I'm not chosen? What if I'm not one of God's elect people? And if that's in your mind this morning, let's talk about that. Okay. Because I think the solution is repent and believe. What does God tell us to do? He says to come to him and to say, I am not chosen. I am not your child. And I repent of my sin and I turn in faith to you and trust that you alone can save me. But this is hard. So if you want someone to walk with you, I'm happy to walk with you. Let's, let's process through this. Let's look at Romans 9 and wrestle with it. It's not easy. And the first time you hear it, it's a little unsettling and a little shaking. So that's okay. But for, for others, it, it, can, it can be just confusing. And so um, for others, it's just a topic of debate. That's all we want to do. We just want to debate this. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three thoughts that take election from our head to to our heart, okay? From a topic of debate to a truth that's going to actually minister to our soul. Because I think that's what God means it to do. It's not supposed to make us mad. It's not supposed to confuse us. It's supposed to minister grace and glorify God. So here's what election does. I'm going to give you three things. Election kills our sense of entitlement and fills us with thanksgiving. Election kills our sense of entitlement and fills us with thanksgiving. I think we live in an age of entitlement when we all seem to think that we have a right to certain things. I deserve this. I'm supposed to have this. If someone else has it, then I should have it. And the thought of God choosing out of his own good pleasure and for his own glory alone certain people rubs me the wrong way. I don't like that. And in some sense it it should, because God doesn't need to conform to our way of thinking. It probably does rub against us because we don't we don't have the mind of God naturally. But rather what we should do instead of just pushing against it is we should see, is this what Scripture teaches? And if so, then I will conform to it. But God's choosing of us should pause, cause us to pause and say, what do I have that I have not been given? 
What, what do I deserve in this life? As someone who has sinned against God. And if we come to the end of that and we say, I really ultimately deserve nothing from God. God owes me nothing. I've earned nothing from him. I've merited nothing from him. If we come to that place, then what does every gift of grace that we have in our lives become? It becomes an opportunity for thanksgiving. Everything. When you do wake up in the morning and you take a deep breath, you say, wow, it's the grace of God. And if you're a child of God, if you have confidence that, that he has made you one of his children by grace alone, through faith in him, we say, I don't deserve this. But, but praise be to God that he has saved me, that he has made me his child. It's not something that we walk around with pride in, but we see how thankful we should be because everything that we have is, is grace. So election kills our sense of entitlement and fills us with thanksgiving. Second, election kills insecurity and fills us with rest. It kills insecurity and fills us with rest. It reminds us that we are children of God, and if we are children of God, then our standing before God has nothing to do with who we are or what we have done. And the comfort of this is that my status as a son or daughter of God never had anything to do with who I am and never will have anything to do with who I am. That God is glorified because he shows me mercy. Sometimes we despair. It's hard. I just wonder, why in the world would God choose me? And you know what? Why would he? Why would he choose any of us? But that doesn't take away from the fact that if we are in Christ, if we have been brought to faith in him, that, that he did. He's done it for his own good pleasure and for a display of his glory, and it ultimately really does have nothing to do with me. And that that should be freeing. I have to worry about whether or not I'm good enough for God because it doesn't it never was dependent upon that in the first place. Do you struggle here? Why would why would God love me? Let me give you just sort of three things to muse on, just I've been thinking about. One is from my journal. <laughs> this is from uh two thousand eleven. February, so about five years ago, we were in in Chicago. I was between jobs, and I was in conversation with a guy named Paul and a guy named Mark and with Joel about the possibility of coming here to be the pastor. Five years ago, uh, we weren't here till May, I think it was, of that year. So this was a tough time. I had no job. (laughs) I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if this is where God was leading us. And I went to Founders Week at Moody Bible Institute, which was a place I always loved to go. and always felt like God spoke clearly to me in those moments. And I sat in Moody Church, a little bigger than this church. It's huge. Uh, <laughs> I sat in Moody Church, and I can still remember where I was sitting. And Haddon Robinson, who literally wrote the book on preaching, was, was preaching. And he was talking about Hosea and God's love for Hosea. And, uh, Mernie, were you there when Haddon that's so awesome. Anyways, so he's he's preaching. This is what I wrote after that when I was I was riding the train home that night. I said of Haddon, he said he emphasized that God does not love us because of who we are or what we have done. But in spite of who we are and what we have done. This was a turning point for me. It was big. I said for an old legalist like me, it was good to hear. <laughs> I've always struggled with understanding and accepting God's love for me. I want to earn it. 
I want to think it's based on something I am or have done. This is what stuck with me. One way he put it really hit home. He said that God's love does not increase. He will not love me more or anyone any more in the future than he does right now. While humans grow in love and love increases as time goes on, God's love is eternally perfect. It cannot become greater. So nothing I do can make God love me more or less. My success or failure in life changes nothing about his love towards me as his chosen son. Father, teach me what that means. Help me to understand and apply that truth. God, help me feel it. Man, I need that. I need to know it's not me. It's, it's God's love for me, not rooted in me. And his love doesn't increase. It hasn't, God loves me the same now as he did when I first became a Christian. My, all the good deeds that I've done through his grace have not made him love me any more than he did then or that he loved me from all eternity past. And the same for you. God's election, it should, it should kill that insecurity because it doesn't matter who I am or what I've done. It matters that God loves me. A second thought from Pilgrim's Progress, if you've been reading it, we saw Pilgrim comes into the valley of humiliation and Apollyon, who represents Satan, comes and attacks him. And Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He comes and he tells Pilgrim all these terrible things that he's done. He points out all of his failures. What does Pilgrim say? He says, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) I could tell you plenty more than what you have. But my confidence isn't rooted in what I have done, but in the fact that, that the king has called me and I'm on this journey to the celestial city. And related to that, hear this advice from Luther. You've heard it from this pulpit before, but it's good to hear it again. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? <laughs> For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on, beha- on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Isn't that good? It doesn't matter. Who cares what you have done or not done? Because that's not why God chose you. That's not why you are his child. You are his child because of his own good pleasure. So maybe try this this afternoon. Get a piece of paper. And on one side, write down every single reason why God should choose you to be his child. Everything that you think is maybe good in you. And, and, and do it in maybe a prideful way, okay? Just let yourself run wild for a little bit. And then take that paper and crumple it up and th- throw it away and say, God didn't choose me for any of those reasons. And then get another piece of paper and write down every reason why God should not let you be his child. Every single wrong thing that you've done. All the reasons that he should reject you. And then crumple it up and say that has nothing to do with why he chose me he chose me not rooted in who i am yes we need to deal with our sins but christ was perfect and he has chosen us in him and any good that's in us is his doing and nothing that we do or don't do can change the fact that we are his child election is going to kill that insecurity so often we try to fight against that insecurity when it comes what if i'm not his child by trying to think about how good we are Do the opposite. Realize how much we don't deserve it and how much it's all of God's grace. It's not dependent upon you. And finally, election kills pride and fills the world with God's glory. Election kills pride and fills the world with God's glory. If God chooses his children like we pick teams on the playground, then there's some glory that 
is due to us. Even if we're chosen because God is said to foresee faith in us, then that's going to produce some sort of pride. But if his choice of you and me as his children is all of grace and it's all of mercy and it's rooted only in that, then he is glorified and he is the author of salvation. He's the perfecter of salvation from beginning to end. And he is glorified alone. Election then is is one part of God's work of salvation. And the whole work of salvation has to be done by God and for God alone. I think that's helpful. Don't just separate it out, but realize it. it's a part of this, this greater whole of God working for his glory and for our good. This is a difficult thing. Have I answered all your questions? Certainly not. Certainly not. But I pray that if we wrestle with this in places like Romans 9, in places like Genesis 25, that, that we would wrestle with it and ultimately we would, we would come to the place of, yes, God sovereignly chooses he will, who he will bless. And it's always undeserved. It's always unconditional. It's always for his glory. And it, it kills all of our insecurity. It kills our sense of entitlement. It kills all, all of our pride. And it makes us love God more. It makes us rejoice more in the salvation that he's given us. It's meant for our good. Yeah, let's wrestle with it. But let's also rejoice in it. It's also bless God that it's not rooted in me. It's rooted in him. We're going to sing a song. First, we'll take a moment of silence. But we're going to sing this song called How Sweet and Awful. <laughs> now, let me just explain that the awful part is, is like awe-inspiring. That we are just enamored with, with what God has done for us. And you read things like this. When we gather together at the feast, we say, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? And thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. And think about God's love that has drawn us in and saved us, not because of anything in us, but because of who he is and of his great mercy. So we're going to take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word. Then we're going to sing. And like last week, I just want to make this more regular practice at our church. If, if as we're singing, you just want to pray with someone, whether it's Joel or myself or someone else in this room, let's do that. Um, if you're prompted to pray or to talk to someone, um, we will do that right uh, during the song, or we can do it after the service, however you prefer. But let's go ahead and take a moment of silence, and then I will pray and we'll sing. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be all the glory. Lord, we we return that back to you even now. We've come here in pride. Humble us. If we've come here fearful and insecure in your love for us, fill us with your love. Lord, if we've come seeking our own glory, let us turn, seek your glory. And find our greatest joy in you. 
Lord, apply your word to our hearts. Let us wrestle with these things, but let us also rejoice in them. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.